Howdy. Welcome to Undersampled Radio, the show where we talk science, tech, oil, business, politics, and more. Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Graham. Together, we're the hosts of this circus. To follow the conversation, make suggestions, or rant and rave, please visit the forum Software Underground at swung.rocks. Every time we go live, my dog walks across the background. <laughs> Clickety click. Yeah. I don't seem to have the little, uh, oh, there it is. There we what? are. A little live thing. I was oh. expecting it, but I'm on my phone, which is why I'm kind of wobbling around. I apologize. <laughs> I tried to go and get into my, I, like, I, I work in a co-working space, Caitlin, which I, I'm a part owner of. And um, so, I, you know, I'm kind of responsible for the place. And I went there tonight because I have a, a, a cupboard that I podcast from normally, and um, I couldn't get in. <laughs> I couldn't get in at all. <laughs> the, the door was basically frozen shut. Uh, sorry, not the door. The uh, the lockbox door where I keep the keys um, oh, no. was frozen shut. So I couldn't. I had to come come home again. So I'm on my wobbly phone. Caitlin probably doesn't know where you live, Matt, and is surprised that it's frozen. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, I live in Nova Scotia on the east coast of Canada. So ah. Okay. Just had the, what do they call it? The, the the bomb storm or the snow bomb or something? We just had the big storm go through, I guess. Okay, and you survived. Yeah, I think most things oh. survived. A couple of boats blew over, which was kind of an, a, a big deal. Some people keep their their sailing boats like on the wharf, and um, so they get the full like brunt of the weather. And I've not seen this happen before, but two of them fell over in this storm, broke their masts and stuff. The bomb cyclone. I heard about this on NPR. I forget what what was the deal with the bomb cyclone. I, I thought we had a Met Pie guy here. I know. Yeah, I don't know what the what the bomb reference is. It sounds. I'm. I don't know. Just marketing fluff. Yeah, I don't think it's any kind of terrorist conspiracy. Can I introduce the show now, Matt? Yeah, please. <laughs> okay, are we ready? Um, yeah, okay. Hello, dearies. Welcome to Undersampled Radio, episode 68. We're here from Matt's house on a cell phone because, as you probably just heard, his lockbox is frozen shut. They will actually, they just changed the locks at his office. They won't let him in anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I've been fired. <laughs> hey, Matt, I'm going to do my one news bullet point first because okay. I only have one and you have 75. Yeah. What's which is a, no, which is a wonderful, which is a wonderful surprise. I was glad to see that you are so excited about this episode. Yeah. Okay, Webplot Digitizer. Oh yeah, this is cool. Yeah, so uh, I met a guy at his name was Ankit. I met him at the Deep Learning Meetup yesterday, and he wrote this Webplot Digitizer. It's a web app that does like. You know, a similar thing to what your Rainbow Bot does, except that it works on not just rainbow, like color raster images. What? Yeah. I thought you were going to say, except that it works. <laughs> I would never, I would never do that to you. No, I don't. Uh, uh, but it works on, it works on XY plots and scatter plots and things like that too. So I played with it for about five minutes. It's pretty cool. Apparently there's thousands of users. So um, yeah, you might send him a message. Send him your yeah, code. Yeah, it's awesome. I feel like it reminded me that I think I saw someone. I'm going to have to do some Googling around or just plain old remembering because I feel like <laughs> someone, someone had pointed 
a uh <laughs> so it's, think like, it's like remembering is google before google <laughs> yeah exactly. I anymore <laughs> i can search for that when i need it um anyway uh, attach something like this to a kind of a web crawler so that it will like crawl through scientific literature, finding figures and, and, and pulling out the data from the figures in the papers so that you could kind of just, you know, download the data from any paper, whether they'd release the data or not, which is a really cool idea. I wish I could remember who was doing it. Um, but yeah, really neat. You often need to do that and digitizing them by hand is a real faff. And error prone, obviously. Yes, indeed. Yeah, so what's cool. happening with well, 52 Things? Well, we, um, we've hired a part-time helper with our little tiny micro-publishing project called cool. uh, Tracy. And she has finally got helped us get our act together with... Um, so as you, as you may know, um, we publish these 52 Things books. They're little books of essays by multiple authors on geology, geophysics, paleontology. And um, they're open access. And there's sort of two sides to the open access coin, right? There's uh, open licenses so that you can reuse the content without permission, which is awesome. And the books have carried that since the beginning. Um, and then there's the access part. And, you know, where it's easy to self-publish a book these days on paper or even in Kindle format, which we've done for a couple of them. But we've never actually, the, the, the like content has never been accessible on the web. So we're finally putting the essays from the earlier books out on the web, like one a week kind of thing, um, as a kind of like a blog. So you can subscribe to it as an RSS feed and whatnot. And in, instead of buying the books, you can just get them straight to your inbox and read read one uh, one essay a week. Yeah. Where where would we find that? Uh, so it, agilelibra.com. Agile Libra is the name of the sort of publishing division of Agile, my company. <laughs> Um, yeah, so uh, agilelibra.com, and uh, I guess you go to the books when you're in there, or you can go to slash content and just get the feed of the whole, of all the books, essentially. And I think you can subscribe by email, I'm not totally, can't quite remember. Um, yeah, so other than that, all my other stuff was just nonsense that I came across on Twitter and things like that. Um, the, the, the second item on this list was about uh, this crazy new camera yeah. or imaging technique, which I thought was vaguely relevant to seismic, so I wanted to mention it. Um, so I think we've talked about before on the show the single pixel camera, yeah. where you can basically build up a multi-pixel image with a single pixel sensor using the crazy sorcery of compressed sensing. Um, and that was an experiment they did at Rice University. Well, this is a sort of similar concept. It's a regular 2D sensor this time, I think something like 1.8 megapixel sensor that they're using. But they put a, um, a sort of, uh, what would you call it? Like a screen, a textured translucent screen in front of the um, sensor. So the sensor's not, yeah, it's like a, a diffractor and it, so the sensor can't actually see the image, but there's no lens. It's just collecting light. And what this weird diffractor does, if you can imagine it, it's a bit like the surface of a swimming pool, you know, some water. Uh, and you've probably noticed on the bottom of the swimming pool when that 
when you know when the sun shines on it you get this sort of pattern of caustics right caustic bright lines and interference pattern and that's the pattern that they're measuring on this sensor and from that not only can they build up an image without a lens um, but the if they can actually build up a 3d image so it's a little bit like a light field camera or something <laughs> so you can like focus the image afterwards it's three-dimensional yeah it's bizarre so they're actually recovering a hundred million pixels from this 1.8 megapixel uh, sensor if I, I might be screwing up those numbers but anyway it's like a hundred X data inflation uh, yeah bonkers I think I read the article I read the article through one time and I said wow that's really cool and then now I'm realizing that I don't know what they were talking about. <laughs> I need yeah, to go I, read it. I mean, it's on archive, so you can read everything. I, I, I didn't delve too deeply into it. I just sort of, yeah. Cool. We actually, by the way, we did do a little tutorial, Python tutorial on compressed sensing in the leading edge about two years ago. Ben Bauer wrote it. Um, and so if you're interested in compressed sensing but don't really know what it is, recommend going and checking out that tutorial open access oh yeah oh yeah put a link to it in the notes how's that who's our guest today this yeah this can just wait we'll talk about it another time um let's caitlin caitlin huden um hello hey thanks for joining us on the show today caitlin is a data scientist at web.com I believe, uh, and if there's nuance to that, you can set me straight in a minute. But um, I always start out by asking people where they are and uh, what's, what's going on where you are in the world. Sure, um, I'm in Austin, Texas. Oh. So here, um, we've gotten small amounts of snow twice. <laughs> that doesn't happen, from what I've told. Um, I am originally from a mix of Chicago and New Hampshire, more recently in New Hampshire. So I've just escaped that cold that you're talking about in Nova Scotia. Right. right. Not quite as bad, but. Okay, so how long have you been in Austin? A little over two years. Oh, okay, cool. And how do you like that part of the world? It's pretty different uh, culturally, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it's really different. Um, New Hampshire is really great it has a lot of history, a lot of outdoorsy stuff to do, not a huge tech scene. Um, they're getting there, uh, but there's not as large a population. So it's been really nice being in Austin, particularly for the tech scene. Um, I do like a couple of meetup groups here. Um, it's pretty busy. There's a lot of companies out here. So there's a lot of good like mental capital happening here. It's a good which, place to be. Which meetups do you go to? <sighs> Um, I help run Our Ladies Austin, and, um, created a um, happy hour called All the Ladies in Tech. So we actually have like so different women in tech meetups. Um, and so that was an effort to kind of like get everyone in one place. Um, and then I go to some of the other ones too. Um, we have a really good Pi data meetup, which isn't quite like the Python meetup or just an R meetup. It's um, often a mix of the two and particularly for data science. But we have so many in Austin. You could go literally every night and have free pizza if you wanted to. Oh, just... <laughs> I mean, I really love living in Nova Scotia, but I get a bit 
rueful when I hear about scenes like that. And same, you know, obviously, same in sort of New York and Vancouver and um, other places. But yeah, that sounds pretty cool. It sounds pretty cool. And there's a lot of uh, data science, it sounds like, in Austin, so like specifically stuff around AI machine learning and, and that kind of thing. Yeah, um, data.worlds, their headquarters is here now. Um, so they're doing a lot of open source stuff. We have, oh, I haven't gotten to go to a meetup there, but they've been hosting a bunch, so kudos to them for that. We have like satellite offices, at least for a bunch of other tech companies. We have Google, we have Facebook. Um, here indeed has a headquarters here so there's a ton of data science happening it's really cool yeah wow so um so what was your kind of path to like did, did you go to school in chicago then if you're from new hampshire or what like how did you end up uh in in austin there yeah so i went to school in chicago um i double majored in statistics and english so um the english was kind of more for fun and because i like writing and I never wanted to pick one or the other. So um, stats was really a good background. Um, from there, I took a job in New Hampshire doing predictive modeling for four years. Um, this company called Rapid Insight has built predictive modeling software that is for uh, people who don't want to like program or code. It helps you with a GUI doing some of that stuff and um, data prep as well. So I worked for them and built models for a bunch of different colleges, a bunch of different nonprofits. That's really their base. Um, and that was a lot of fun. It was like a mix of doing bug testing for software and troubleshooting, as well as consulting work. So I'd get to go to like Boston Children's Hospital and work on a model for them for a few days um, or cool places like that. So it was a good mix and a good way to see other people's data <laughs> so you get to see like the problem with a lot of people's data early on, which is really nice for a first job. Yeah, right. Is, is, a, is a major in statistics these days, I mean, has it become quite computational? Because I sort of, I, I just imagine a lot of blackboards and, uh, you know, writing equations and things. But I imagine statistics is, because I don't know, I feel a bit like when you talk to people about data science, they tend to either think about mathematics or computer science. But is statistics the the real center of that uh, that world? I think it's like a mix of statistics and computer science, and how much you have of each can kind of determine what type of data scientist you are. I think there are like different types: people who do more um, analysis-driven work to find insights and research and present as recommendations. Or you can be building like models that get put into production and are making recommendations on their own. And those are totally different roles, but I think they both fall under data science. Um, so as far as statistics, my program was applied. Definitely recommend that if you have the option. Um, I didn't know that when I was 18 and starting, so um, into that. Um, the program that I did taught us a little bit of, I think, four different programming languages, uh, wow. but mostly focused on SAS. Mm -hmm. wow. um, it was pretty biostats heavy. Um, they had a large biostats department. So that's kind of the background. I think it worked really well as far as like getting a foundation for the math and the statistical underpinnings of things. Um, this could be improved by adding like some SQL um, or some of that kind of stuff. It's like you you get a lot of the more 
statistical things, but you don't get a lot of like real world data and cleaning messy data, like stuff that happens in the real world. Everything I got was very, the first time I had to like clean up a data set, that was a whole world of things to learn. Yeah, um, you're like, wait a minute. <laughs> this isn't how it was. This isn't perfect. <laughs> yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Because I think, um, you know, obviously, like when you're teaching a course like that, I can imagine you sort of feel like you want to get to the meat of the problem. And it's easy to kind of forget, I think, that actually the meat of the problem is often a really small part of the problem. You've got to like hunt it down, kill it, skin it, and <laughs> sort of butcher it before you get to the meat. And um, yeah, I struggle with that a bit too because, you know, we teach some. Um, a little course on uh, Python for geoscientists, and it's like, how much? Like, if if it was pure reality, you wouldn't get anything done. Three days, <laughs> but um, yeah, interesting. So you kind of just lucked into being in an applied course that happened to have a decent computational under like foundation. It sounds like, and then got a really awesome sounding job right after it, which is another. Like. Yeah, I um I took a year off, so I graduated a little early and promised myself a little time. And in that year, I helped run my dad's friend's burrito shop. <laughs> awesome. I would highly recommend. Um, it was a good like. Find <laughs> I did a little bit of ski bumming. Um, since the town I'm from is like a ski valley, that was a nice way to kind of chill out a little bit. I was thinking about actuarial actually at that point and then um, found the job that I eventually ended up getting so and those two things are kind of similar like statistics is also a really good setup for actuarial sciences um, like the divergence of actuarial and data science I think is getting like smaller and smaller every yeah. day I think they're gonna eventually kind of combine in some way or awesome. each other because there's yeah. more probability and uncertainty handling coming into the data science? Yeah, um, especially like if you get into some Bayesian stuff, um, where being able to like communicate your uncertainty is super duper important. Um, I think as we're able to do more, um, we're gonna see a lot more of that kind of coming up, like running simulations on larger and larger data sets. I think maybe 10 or 15 years ago, that wasn't really as possible as it is now. Um, kind of watching that sort of thing happen as well, like the field changing in all of these different directions. That's just one thing, the field that's changing. Yeah, right. So um, so did you come from that company in New Hampshire that you, you came from there to Austin, or was there another stop along the way? Um, just, just the one stop. Right. Um, yeah, I, I decided that I wanted to move to Austin after attending South by Southwest um, and coming and visiting and checking it out. I um, started applying for jobs down in Austin um, and I met, uh, during the interview process, I met um, Tim Stino, who is my boss. And Tim has this really awesome philosophy on hiring and sort of the modern workplace Oh, I'm blanking on the name of it now. It has a name. Comes from the guy who created LinkedIn. Okay. Um, it, 
it's described as like a tour of duty. So the idea is that since pensions aren't around anymore, those aren't a thing, there's not as much incentive for an, an employee to stick with an employer. Um, and so this tries to kind of cut by you setting up an agreement, like an agreement of trust with your employer and saying like, I would like to accomplish these things during this period of time. And on their end, they have certain things that they want for the company in the same period of time. So you sort of come to an agreement, like for two years, I'll do this for you, you do this for me. Kind of like assess all along the way. And that was really fascinating to me. I thought that was a really cool way of approaching it. Um, so I'm now working on my second tour, tour of duty. Um, Interesting. How so did web How did the first one? How did the first tour wrap up? I mean, did, what, <laughs> in hindsight, was it what you'd expected when you went into it? So we got acquired about three months after I started. Ah. <laughs> the company that I went to work for was called Yodel, and they were a marketing data company. So um, I wanted to learn how to code some of like the statistical data stuff to them in exchange for like learning how to code. So that was kind of the goal of my tour with some other stuff in there. So we definitely sort of both got things out of it, but my role changed twice in that two years, just with everything kind of shifting around. So um, I spent the first year working on marketing data. Interesting. So looking at like what factors would cause a page to rank on Google and running A-B tests with different, like if we turn this thing on or tweak this title tag, what happens to page ranks? And we had a bunch of clients that we could do that with. So that was kind of interesting. Um, year I did product analytics. So I worked on a dental product called Lighthouse 360. That is a message system so um, dentists use it in order to message their patients and the way that they um, get revenue is like by having a full calendar so if someone cancels want to be able to find the next person to take that slot otherwise it's lost revenue um, so one of the things that we rolled out while I was there was a fill-in feature mm -hmm. which would look at all of the people who are overdue for a dentist appointment or are coming in but would like a sooner one and would automatically like text them and say hey do you want to come in a little early um, was kind of a really cool feature to work on and we worked on like some other stuff so I did a year doing uh, product analytics, which was interesting, uh, something I hadn't done in that way before. Yeah, yeah right. that's really fascinating. How, so um, it meant on your, I think it was on LinkedIn, it mentions that you're building an optimizer for PPC ads, right? Um, is that yeah. current or is that part of the project that we were just talking about? No, that's current. So um, I switched to another team in November or December. Mm -hmm. um, and that team is working on an algorithm or already has an algorithm that um, takes a client's budget and the keywords that they want to spend for and the amount of time that they want to spend over and tells Google how much we want to bid for each keyword each day. We have a couple of different like parts of the algorithm that work together to determine that project that had sort of been in place before I got there. And now um, I was to my boss and he is like the new person overseeing it. New group of people sort of coming into an older project. It's really interesting to sort of look at the pros and cons and we're doing some work to figure out 
how should we monitor this going forward? Like what parts of it can we replace? Is there better research that we can do? A lot of the code and found places where are coded and we're like, where is this coming from? You know, so we have just sort of a list of things that we can work on um, in order to improve that. The algorithm, there are other parts of the company that are doing like data science-y things too. So currently and that's been really cool um i haven't gotten to work with data in production tour and, and so that was something i've really been wanting to do um and so far it's been a lot of fun i'm doing things like writing unit tests and functional tests that's what i was learning today doing some pair programming um on writing functional tests and so cs background and this stuff is all like fascinating it's all stuff i don't know been really cool to work for a company that's willing to sort of grow you from one area to another yeah that's it's really important and if i feel like a lot of um a lot of companies sort of talk that talk but it sounds like these these folks um kind of walk walk the walk as well um you know because it's one thing to sort of say oh you know you've got responsibility for your own uh, career path or whatever but you've actually got to follow that up with not not just the sort of um, opportunities for training, say, but also things like pair, pro you know, there's just the day-to-day -day kind of development opportunities like pair programming, which we don't crazily have a real equivalent of in, say, the applied science that, that I tend to do in subsurface work. Um, but I think it would be a really great feature to do like pair interpretation of uh, seismic data, for example. Um, and uh, and also not to kind of confuse, like companies I've worked in the past, there's, there's this same kind of, uh, what would you call, it's almost like a relationship of convenience where you both recognize that it's a convenient relationship, right? It's like, I'll do this for you, you do this for me. Um, but they confuse it by, say, having share options which vest over time, which comes from mm -hmm. a day when you were supposed to be around the company for years and years and you would just wait for them to vest and you had a pension and the relationship was like that. But now it's a more tra sort of transient relationship, but they still have this weird baggage from kind of the old days, you know. So the, the relationship, that skews the relationship because it's, you get penalized for leaving, essentially there's really no penalty for them for letting you go. So, so I think some of the dynamics are a bit messed up in oil and gas where, where I work um, because of that. You know, so it's really cool to, I, I love hearing about how startups and tech companies operate. It's kind of reminds me of how when I first found out how programmers manage projects with like source control and um, you know, it just like commit statements and and comments and documentation, really, they're they're really in a way they're sort of simple little organizational hacks. Um, you know, that it blows me away how we haven't adopted more of that outside in sort of other areas that struggle with project management and continuity and you know documentation stuff like that. So, I think one of the flip sides of that too is there's so many jobs in tech that aren't super technical. 
I guess I should say that like project managers, they can do very technical things. Some of them do come from technical backgrounds, but you don't have to be like a computer science person tech and do really cool things and contribute to these really cool projects. Like there are all of these jobs that I never knew existed for like a bigger tech company. Um, so now I just kind of tell everyone <laughs> that like, hey, these things are out there. I think like high schools and colleges don't even stuff exists. I know that like data science was invented while I was in college. <laughs> Amazing to me um, that there are some of these like fields and positions that are coming out, which I have 10 years ago, I can only imagine what that will be like in the next five, 10 years. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Interesting. So, so what, how's your, um, your sort of journey to uh, learning to code and how's that um, ambition going? It sounds like you're well underway. You're writing tests and things. Like, are you using R? You mentioned that you were in uh, this um, R Ladies Austin group, um, or are you in uh, Python or all over the place with other things? What's, what's going on there? Yeah. So, uh, that's kind of ironic. I learned some R in college. Um, and so R seemed like a good place to start. Um, I really love the community that exists around R. I think like it's a fantastic group of people. There's tons of tutorials and interesting analyses coming out all the time, um, which is part of the reason I was so interested in joining R Ladies and sort of bringing some of that to Austin. Um, the ironic thing about that is now my job is entirely Python. Mm -hmm. Like my first couple years, mostly in R, and then now I don't touch R except for like projects on the side. Um, and that's really just the code base that I'm working on is all Python. I've been learning some of that stuff really quickly. Um, like the unit test library, it'll be like go to work, things in person, like do pair programming, which is awesome. I love learning that way. And then kind of going home and being like, okay, I need to look up this thing, this thing, this thing. Um, and kind of cool about data science too. It's like one of those fields where there's always more things to learn, which is really nice, You, but you do have to kind of be committed to learning new things. If I were just using methodologies that were invented 10 years ago, you fall behind almost by default. Um, so it's kind of so it's kind of the two sides of the same coin. As far as learning, as far as you learning to code, I think pair programming, pair programming has been, been amazing. Um, I've been really lucky to get as much time doing that as I thought I would. I wasn't sure me off the deep end and say like, okay, let's let's see what happens. Um, so it's been really nice to have help along the way. As far as like learning to code initially, I used DataCamp and took a few of their courses to kind of get my feet wet in R before I really started data for my job. I thought that was super duper useful. Um, being able to submit their code and then like they check it for you. Have you guys looked at that at all? Have you seen DataCamp before? Oh, never played with it. The way it's set up is they have instructors who record videos and then um, video and they kind of test you on the topics by uh, presenting you some code like a like a problem like take this data frame and sort it by this variable and then get the top thing um, and then you type in your code console that's not actually a console but when you kind of click enter it will run your code and if there's an error it will give you a hint and you can choose to see like 
the answer if you need to, but it was a really neat way of learning code, having someone actually checking your stuff. I think that's kind of hard when you're first getting started. Yeah. But you don't really know if you hit an error, like what to do or why that might be. And they've kind of safeguarded all of that stuff. If they see an error enough, they put something in, which is great. Yeah, right. That's really cool. Um, so yeah, so te testing is a sort of interesting subject that I've been not struggling with lately, but um, just wondering about because we're, we're teaching a course in a couple of weeks and I'm sort of wondering whether to talk about testing because um, it's, it's this for a, I'm teaching a bunch of scientists, introducing them to Python and to machine learning. So most of them haven't, won't have coded before. And uh, this is the first time we've had sort of many days. So we've got five whole days, um, which is obviously you're not going to teach someone to sort of program comfortably and proficiently in five days, but you can get them started and introduce them to a lot of concepts and things. And I, I've sort of started coming around to the idea that, um, that testing might be a good thing to introduce to people. But I don't know, when I, when I think about my sort of day-to-day -day workflow, I don't do a lot of testing, and I sort of mm -hmm. feel a little bit guilty <laughs> about that. I think we should probably do more. Mm -hmm. um, in wondering about this and exploring around a bit, but I like PyTest. That's the library that I use for testing in my projects where we, where we implement testing. Um, but I've finally got to the bottom of DocTest, which I heard of lots of times before. I've actually been trying it, thinking maybe that's an, a way to introduce the concept of testing because it's so easy. Um, so I don't know. What do, you, what do you think about all of that? How did you get into testing? Is it an intuitive concept? Have you tried doc test? Um, I think I should leave it all alone. <laughs> I haven't tried doc test. Um, I know that we use unit test and pie test. Um, the combination and i'm still sort of figuring them out so i won't try to explain when we use which one because i don't know for sure um as far as testing goes so science stuff that i was doing was analysis driven trying to find an insight or something to give back to a team or to work on a feature or add something to a project a product I wasn't doing so much testing i wasn't doing any testing right we were making everything reproducible but I think testing, looking back, it probably would have been a good thing. Sure that there aren't a ton of missing values here or a bunch of zeros coming in here or infinite values, something like that. Um, I've only really started testing as I'm working with code in production. Like really strict, um, really good dev practices around like QA, we have a whole guild that focuses on QA and that's kind of neat. So I don't have to focus too much on it. There are people like building tools to make that easier. Hmm. We do have to do it. And so I think it's really good to like at least learn the best practices, even if you're not gonna use them right away, maybe just introducing people to testing and the concepts and how it can help you. Yeah, I mean, in, in our consulting businesses, we rarely, you know, we're mostly delivering insight. Right? We're mostly delivering decisions to customers. And so customer doesn't care if you run unit tests or not. I mean, as long as you get them an answer, that's what they're interested in. But it's an important thing that we need to use. I mean, if we're sharing our code with other people, if we're working on a team, even internally, it's worth doing it. Yeah. I mean, 
yeah i you know i feel like there is a school of thought isn't there that you'd like you like every single function you write should have a test what I, i'm curious i don't know if you know this or can uh share it but i'm curious what kind of test coverage you would typically have in a production um sort of setting do you do you know yeah so ours goal <laughs> yeah our shoots for 100 percent. so i just got my first 100 percent passing suite of unit tests last week and i was like really excited about that um that's awesome there, there are certain functions where they have this thing called no cover which is like thing like we usually that means either it's being tested somewhere else or th there's another reason that it would it would maybe fail a test or not lend itself to testing mm -hmm. um, but those are the exception more than the rule for us the rule for us is like if you don't have that if for some reason you know that isn't specified it, it has to have tests that are testing the lines and making sure it works yeah. I so I put in code for a project I was working on like as an analyst and so i'm like okay i'm building a service here here's the things that i do here are my steps code before testing and then after i did all the testing it is amazing how different it looks because yeah. now there are like try this and catch this exception and look for this thing so it's also helped me write um i won't say it wasn't frustrating while i was learning that and trying to figure out like why why do we test this why does this matter um the side by side of the two pieces uh, before and after it, it's definitely making me like a better developer. So it's really good to at least go through that exercise. I think I kind of think in that way, like if he's lying, everything, just like what's the worst thing that could happen here? How could this blow up and then trying to prevent it? Yeah. Yeah. I, well, one thing I really liked when I sort of finally kind of got testing was probably only, I don't know, three years ago, really where I started using it. Um, more rigorously. I really liked how it kind of gamified the process of, of coding and like gave you this kind of goal and achievements that, you know, I mean, you already get that as a programmer because just when things work, it's kind of you get the little endorphin hit. But um, testing really kind of puts some data around that, you know, especially when you add coverage and you're like trying to get your numbers up. It, like it's, Fun, you know. It's cool. You can see like a little green thing that says like "good job." Yeah, yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, I like changing something small and then rerunning all of my tests, and it's like they still work. Yay! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just yeah. a quick thing. Um, but yeah, it's it's good to know it and to learn it. Um, your coding for sure, because you start to think in a way of like what could go wrong and catching it. Yeah, totally. Caitlin, how long have you been blogging? Um, so when I worked at Rapid Insight, I started their blog and wrote over a hundred posts, science data things. Um, some a little bit more markety, um, like lights of this conference, but always with a data angle. Um, so that was. A lot of fun. I really liked doing it. And then when I moved, I sort of dropped the blogging and I was a little sad about it. So I just picked it up again in December, November or December. Um, and so my my blog is only a couple months old, but I have been blogging 
Cool. Yeah, awesome. Is that um, is it, yeah? I I must say I don't follow a lot of data science blogs, so I'll subscribe to yours. But um, is is it something that ever comes up in a work context? Because I sometimes hear people in like you know my field are like, oh, I can't talk about my work and this kind of thing. But um, I I feel like actually it's really important to have this culture of um, stories and, and sharing and, and so on that's outside of, that's in your profession but outside of your work. Mm -hmm. It's part of your sort of identity as a professional and as an independent intellect. Um, do you, have you ever encountered any kind of pushback or do you, do, what do you uh, think? So um, I worked on like consulting stuff. I was looking at other people's data all day. So I couldn't talk about their data at all. Um, but we would see patterns in, in building predictive models. And so we just kind of abstract that away from the individual data and say, like, you know, some people are putting as predictors of, like, retention. And, and those will show up because maybe newer people are more likely to churn or something like that. Um, so we would see things and just create dummy data to sort of represent those patterns. I think it's really important to share what you're learning without sort of stepping on anyone's toes like for uh, web.com is a um, public company a lot of new rules that i'm learning i've only worked for private companies before mm. around like what we can share and it's it's really strict um, so i've done some blog posts where i'm actually using slides that i've presented internally and just dummying out any numbers or uh, graphs or anything like that or removing all of the labels i think there are ways that you can share your data anything away um, just by sort of like sanitizing it or you know creating like and doing that sort of thing yeah no I like that expression you used um, abstracting out the ideas you know because that's, that's basically it's like a generalization and yeah I think that's a really important kind of step and I kind of worry that if people if all people are doing it is that just in the work all the time then they never necessarily even take that step of abstracting out the the kind of themes or whatever. Uh, I think that's a really important activity so that you can learn and, and grow and so on. And a blog's just a sort of way of, like for me, a blog's just like a, so I can remember stuff. Yeah. <laughs> it's just a, a notebook because I, you know, otherwise you just sort of, I don't know, everything just goes down the river of... <laughs> <laughs> the That's, river of um, memory is gone. I've started this um, hashtag, um, and it's like hashtag DS for data science learnings. Okay. And yeah. me personally, to track and quantify what I'm learning every week. Totally. Learning is fun. Yeah. But when you're on the job, sometimes it feels like I. I'm, not getting that far you're not picking up that new stuff and so i think it's motivating to look back and see how far you've come i also think it's really important for others to everyone is kind of learning as they go especially in a field like data science oh. um so when i see someone ask a question i, I think it's really good just to kind of put that stuff out into the open and let other people know like hey I don't know everything I don't know this stuff I don't know unit testing I mean I do now but I didn't um, so I really like people 
they're learning too and sort of like trends in that way you know kind of keep a pulse on the field and learn a lot yeah where you've come so we also found that you're a mentor so do you what's the what's the motivation for you to do the blogging and to disseminate information to other people and to work with with people who don't know as much as you i mean where what's the drive and is it worth it i think there's a few motivations it's always worth it um mentoring i feel really strongly about women in tech and encouraging more women to get into tech i was really fortunate to grow up with a mom who was into coding and coding way before it was cool. She was working on cell phones when cell phones first came out, like in the 80s, 90s. Um, and I thought that was so cool. Like some of the technology that she brought home, she got like a computer that was a TV when I was yeah. like high school. Um, so I, <laughs> yes. Um, and so she was kind of doing that stuff. And then eventually she had a career change to be a math teacher. And so her in a different form, like just doing stats and then going into computer science, I just did it backwards. Um, but that was really lucky. I got to see a role model doing that. Um, organizations I work with, Magic, is sponsored by Google. Um, what they do is they go into middle schools and high schools and they find girls who are interested in STEM. A mentor who is uh, working out in STEM. So they have a lot of people working at Google and kind of all over the place. And you have to apply to be a mentor. You have to apply to get into the program. Uh, they match you personally so they work with the girls teachers to match them with a mentor that makes sense and then you spend about a semester working on a project project-based mentorship is so cool because you have something to like talk about and be working towards and working on and each girl picks the project so they pick something they're interested in and then you kind of work towards that um, so for me that meant meeting once a week or so a girl who's 13 and just kind of helping her learn how to code um, so we did our she did data camp um, and at the end you all present your projects and they record it and they do a big day and they send people out from google to like celebrate so it's a really really cool way for girls to not only like meet women in technology but you work on a project together i think there's something about that that kind of period of time that you work with them um, oh yeah it's a really really cool organization um, huh. working with um, women in tech groups I think that's really important too like a lot of women take a break for example after maternity leave or that sort of thing it can be really hard to get back in so there are some organizations doing really cool things for that it's really cool when women want to learn how to code, especially if that's not something that they pursued when they were younger. Um, we have a lot of women in our groups who are older than me. And I, I wouldn't necessarily have guessed that, I guess, before I got in. Um, but they're really interested in like taking their careers. Maybe they've been doing data analytics in Excel for years and years and years. And they hear about coding and they want to like make that transition. Um, so I think it's cool for them to have support to do that and a place where they can learn and that sort of thing. Is um, there a mentorship program for uh, adult women in coding? 
Yeah, um, I've heard of several ways of approaching that. Um, I personally have done like a speed mentorship program. I got hooked up with a woman in Austin who owns her own marketing firm. Um, and so we like had lunch and I have her email address. If I ever have questions, I can email her, which is a really good thing. Um, I know that our ladies global. So our ladies is actually a global thing. Um, there are chapters all around the world. It's really cool. Um, it's a bunch of women supporting women. And I didn't realize how supportive got an award at work. And like a work award doesn't seem that cool. You know, like in my company, it's like great. But then I was like, excited about it and they like tweeted about it on the global Twitter Wow! so cool and I just it's I, I, I don't know it's kind of mind-blowing like the support that people have for each other and that encouragement I think will help tech um, which I think is a really good thing so uh, for our younger listeners who are interested in this sort of thing how would someone go about applying for this uh, magic program um, I think it's getmagic.org. I'm just gonna check that. Yep, getmagic.org. Um, so you can apply through there. Usually they pick a school and then they bring, because they work with the administrators and the teachers to do the matching and that sort of thing. Um, so if you're interested, I would maybe email them or email me, I can put you in touch with them about getting magic at your school and they're adding schools every year and they need mentors just as much as they need mentees so if it's something you're interested in you can do it um, over google hangouts like this mm -hmm. so whether you're there in person or not um, you can still kind of participate in the program is this a global organization us um us i don't know or not I don't know like what their plans are I know they're expanding within the US um, sure. Ann Richards the school I worked with was the first school in Austin and that was their first time doing it here so that was really exciting gotcha okay and then tell us more about our ladies Austin specifically what, sure. what you guys have meetups here what once a month yeah, so um, Our Ladies Austin kicked off last March, so we're not even a year old. Um, the fun thing about Our Ladies is everything is growing so quickly that I started reaching out to people being like, what are you doing? And it's like, everyone's winging it, which is really fun. Yeah. Um, so everything that everyone tries is the first time. And a few different kinds of meetups. We've done like some lightning learning, just quick, like five, 10 minute presentations. You see a bunch of them. It's really cool, really interesting. We found out that we have some women who have written packages, like, mm -hmm. oh, I used that package. I had no idea you awesome. wrote that and you're right down the street. So that was really cool. Um, we picked a book, R for Data Science, and we are working through that um, chapter by chapter. So that's like a six month series that we've been doing. Mm -hmm. um, it's a workshop. So you um, see like a slide presentation, kind of a summarization of the materials. And then we have some scripts for you to work through. And there are people to help. Started a book club, uh, which has been really cool. So the book club reads mathy, statsy, data sciencey books. Um, the rules are pretty lax. We've only read one so far, but we have the next one coming up at the end of this month. Um, we started with Dear Data, which is uh, two women who, do you know it? Have you guys heard of this? No, 
Never read it. Okay. So it's um, two women who get to know each other by writing postcards, one a week, visualizing their day-to-day -day things. Okay, I've read about this. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I think they're actually visual designers, uh, but they're kind of interested in data. So they spend the week collecting their data, an image on the back of a postcard, and then kind of on the other side, they make a key to the image so you can sort of decode it. Um, but they're really artistic, really cool. It's like a coffee table book. The book is beautiful. Um, and the collection was bought by MoMA. I hope it's MoMA, not the Met. One of those two. Um, able to see it soon. So like they bought the whole collection from them. Um, so it's really beautiful art, but it's also cool data stuff. Um, so we got together and made our own postcards at a coffee house that had a beer list and so we made a data set out of the beer list and just everyone visualized it huh, that's cool uh, and that was that's really cool so it's cool to see like how people take the same thing and run with it in 50 different directions so it's, it's all the same data and you just came up with different visualizations but analog or do you, this was digital no this was analog so we had a stack of colored pencils and a bunch of index cards i love this that this is so yeah this is such a cool idea like an interactive it's like almost like a meetup but it's actually way better than that because you're not just sitting and listening to a presentation yeah, yeah. it's like that a micro a nano hackathon yeah, i like the idea of a kind of analog hackathon too because yeah. yeah it's you know it's totally accessible like anyone can just show up and um everyone likes coloring in you know, I'm a geologist, so I mean that's basically half the half the deal. Um, yeah, I love that. We're doing a, a hackathon in June, and the theme is visualization. So I'm kind of collecting ideas for like ways to get people going on thinking about, you know, how to because uh, we, we you know we have a lot of really standard visualizations in in geoscience. Like, this is how you look at that data, and I keep thinking like. But if you gave that data to someone who'd never seen that display before, what would they come up with? You know, because mm -hmm. uh, a lot of our displays are actually based on old analog equipment and the right. way that they happen to print things out in the field or whatever, wow. like literally sixty or eighty years ago. And so I'm I'm sure they're not optimal for kind of interpretation. They're just they're kind of accidental. Uh, you know, um, what's the word? Anachronistic hang-ups just from accidents of history. You know, so anyway, interesting. That's cool. How does uh, how do our listeners get in touch with you to join Our Ladies Austin? Um, if you go to meetup.com and just search for Our Ladies, um, you'll get all of the chapters actually. So if you're not in Austin probably maybe a chapter near you um, if you're in a city, which is really cool. Um, or I just search Our Ladies Austin will pop up. Um, all of the events are under like one, one heading, so. Awesome. Is it only ladies allowed? It is ladies and invited guests. I see. So um, yeah, so I think like it's totally cool if guys want to show up. Um, we just ask that you kind of have like frame of mind. Um, you're into advancing women in technology. That's our stated mission. And you have to be good with colored pencils. <laughs> it helps. <laughs> cool. 
Hey, Matt, what are you reading right now? Uh, I'm actually, oh, I can't even remember what it's called, but actually I think it might be part of it seems to be taking place in New Hampshire. Not totally sure about that actually, but certainly in that part of the world. Um, oh boy, I should have looked up the title, but anyway, it's about cross country skiing. It's by a guy who, um, essentially decided to train like an elite athlete for a year in cross country skiing. So he kind of, I guess he lives somewhere near Lake Placid or something. And so he's describing a lot of New England stuff. But right now in the book, he's in Australia um, for the sort of Southern Hemisphere winter in search of snow, basically, so that he can ski. But it's it's an interesting book. He's a, he's a writer, a journalist um, by sort of profession. So he's got a knack for, you know, spinning a yarn. Although I must say the last chapter was a little bit, depressing some of his life stuff kind of impinging on the story i was sort of looking for something to motivate me to go out running when it's basically <laughs> minus, i mean the weekend it must have been minus 25 celsius or something it was so, so cold um but yeah it's pretty good i'll look it up and put it in the show notes because it's cool it's i'm enjoying it good caitlin how are you enjoying weapons of math destruction it's so good um I finished it for our book club like towards the end of last year and the things about that book if you are designing algorithms or contact with algorithms which is everyone and you have any sort of interest it's that algorithm design can have an impact on the world um negatively how it can negatively impact the world um but she provides some guidance on algorithms and how to keep tag tabs on your algorithms and make sure that they're doing the things you want them to do um, and looking for some of those like flags uh, that might be bad. One side effect of reading that book is now I'm seeing these things <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> like I went to Target and they have uh, video screens now, you know, like the self checkouts at Target yeah. have a video like camera monitor right above the screen where you're kind of clicking around to check out. Um, they might be using that data and combining some of that like facial recognition with purchase data. Um, I think it's interesting to see like what is regulated and what's not regulated yet. I think there's a lot where regulation hasn't what people are capable of as far as technology. Um, so there are some parts of that that are a little scary, <laughs> but there is some really solid advice in there for like algorithms, you know, making sure that outputs and making sure that you can track the outputs and update the algorithm. Um, good read. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I read that book uh, too and I, oh. it's really arresting because I think I bought it in an airport, you know, just for something to read on the plane sort of thinking that I'd skim it, but actually it was really like quite a, um, quite moving because you just don't necessarily think about how disadvantaged some people are already. And then, you know, because one of the points she makes in the book, I think is essentially the, the poorer you are, the more likely you are to be treated on the whole with these kind of aggregating, automated systems and the, the richer you are the more likely you are to be treated by a human and 
obviously that has all sorts of problems associated with it as well and biases and so on but um but the difference being that we're sort of people tend to think that the automated systems are somehow fairer and objective because computers or whatever and and we don't we don't watch we're not the systems aren't in place to watch for the the biases and the consequences and they're not regulated a lot of them you know it's basically in this kind of wild west of ai that we have right now which sort of touches on another thing that i've been reading or, or sort of hearing lately this theme and i was just looking for the author that originated this sort of thesis if you like but um there's been a bit, if you Google around um, sort of AI and corporations, um, there's this sort of meme, if you like, going around right now about how essentially malevolent AIs with unfettered um, objectives, objective functions, if you like, are already here and they're corporations. You know, they're, they're um, optimizing on shareholder return and we don't really know how to deal with them and um some in some cases they seem to be out of control and in some cases their ethics seem to be counter to what we'd like to see in in society and obviously the oil and gas industry is one of the industries that tends to behave like this thankfully it isn't data driven right now um but it's going that way um i think you could argue that the finance industry has already gone that way, you know, where we don't really know what it's doing and it isn't necessarily acting in our interests. And, you know, so I think it's really interesting just sort of, it's awesome that people are writing about this stuff and that um, it's in the kind of mainstream media too. Um, so if you're gonna be in Austin on the 27th, uh, my boss is Lynn Posick is giving a talk at day to day Texas about quantifying uh, gender bias in ML models. Um, so we were doing a bunch of work with, with graph data and we wanted to actually make a quantization of the, of the error and the bias with respect to different subgroups inside of our data. Um, it's hmm. going to be an awesome talk. So, Totally recommend it if you're going to be here. That sounds awesome. I'll see you there. Before we go, there is one more thing on this list that we need to talk about, and that is, Caitlin, you're a veggie taco connoisseur. It's true. <laughs> I'm just it's learning. True. So I just moved to Austin a couple months ago, and I'm just learning about breakfast tacos, and they're lovely. I'm I veggie tacos seem to be the best tacos to me. You think so? Yeah. So there's like, I, so right now, and again, I'm an amateur, top of the list is like breakfast tacos with some sort of potatoes in them, okay. then veggie doc tacos, and then um, like meat tacos, and then what Austin calls seafood tacos. <laughs> what, what, I can what, get down with that list. What are the chief ingredients in a veggie tacos? Well, you can be a ton of different things. What are your okay, favorite? Yeah. There's no standard sort of this is the veggie taco I'm talking about. It's whatever you want. So one of the cool things about Austin is they have a diversity in tacos. Um, you go any place, like their standard, even like token veggie taco, if they just have one, it's gonna be totally different than the shop down the road. Um, 
I think avocado is a heavy theme. Oh, yes. And, and black beans. Um, I think those are like sort of the top two ingredients plus a kind of cheese. Where, where, what's your favorite veggie taco in town? I need to make those. Oh, I am a big fan of Tyson's tacos. Tyson's. Yoda at Tyson's is really good. And also at Torchies. Torchies. Um, I like the independent and the fried avocado. Cool. I haven't tried Tyson's yet. Let me go check it out. Okay. All right, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for joining us. You can come down anytime, Matt. <laughs> Thank you for joining us on Understandable Radio. We'll see you next week with uh, somebody doing something. <laughs> yeah. Caleb, thanks for joining us on the show. Yeah, thanks. thanks, guys. Thank you. Bye.